It was just over 100 years ago this month when the prominent American architect E.G.W. Dietrich put forth a kind of manifesto stating plainly his vision of how he approached his work in the world. As we'll hear, his language is frank and it has a kind of educational intent, helping the reader to see clearly and appreciate the possibilities of the fresh style for those living in America at the turn of the 20th century. He writes, I offer my design as a practical one, as a house intended for the enjoyment of domestic comfort. I have sought in my drawings to keep prominent what I believe to be the essential principle of a successful home, and that is putting aside the temptation to produce art for art's sake, to create fine lines without regard for the exigencies of the life that is to be lived within the structure. In a word, I have studied to meet the requirements of our American customs and of natural conditions. He gives one example. The site of this house is a picturesque one on a hillside overlooking a wide valley, and the surrounding country abounds in field stones, which furnish the structural material for the house. The stones are built into the walls with the weather stains and moss-covered surfaces exposed. They are laid up boldly in cement with wide joints and penciled with black in order to deepen the shadows. The natural colors produced by time, soft, rich browns, grays, and greens, in a wide variety of shades, blend beautifully together in a mass most agreeable to the eye. The second story, overhangings and gables, are covered with cement-toned uh, warm gray and the roofs with slate that is green. All detail, such as molding, etc., are eliminated, effect being sought for in outline, lights, shadows, and color schemes. The last is the most important consideration, and that is the proper placing of furniture. And the modern advance in artistic knowledge has shown the absurdity of filling our houses with mechanical reproductions of the furniture of other times or other countries. However accurately these historic schemes may be realized, they must necessarily form an incongruous setting for modern life, and one cannot too strongly condemn the crowded assemblage in a single dwelling of representatives of widely different periods and places, offering as they do the crudest and most inharmonious transitions of style. It may be urged that the use of historic furnishings and ornament shows at least a sympathy with old-time beauty, but those who best understand and appreciate the work of the past are the most painfully impressed by the false antique and the impositions of certain modern manufacturers and decorators. The chief characteristics of the new departure in architecture and in furniture design are the careful study of proportion, simplicity of form, consideration for ease and comfort, sparing, judicious ornament, which should always justify itself by its beauty and not owe its existence to cheap and meaningless pressed machine work or the molded putty designs. It should be well conceived and carefully executed by skilled artisans. We ought seriously to consider the building of a home the desired habitation which we may hope to leave no more, and which, after our lives, will become the dwelling place of our descendants. 
having then once acquired a home with furnishings sound in construction and of such simple and unobtrusive merits as, one may hope, will outlive the changes of passing fashion. These cherished belongings may be handed down from generation to generation, reinforced by such repairs as good judgment dictates. words of prominent American architect E.G.W. Dietrich in the Craftsman magazine of October 1902 through March 1903, edited by furniture maker and design leader Gustav Stickley. Christopher Gent found himself living in a home designed by E.G.W. Dietrich on Long Island, so he knows firsthand how successful Dietrich was at creating homes, in the architect's words, for the enjoyment of domestic life. Gent was intrigued, and for the last 10 years, he's been following leads and digging deep to discover the remarkable legacy of E.G.W. Dietrich. And that exploration has brought him to Scranton, where he'll offer a special program to introduce us to all that he's discovered about the distinctive work Dietrich did right here. The talk is titled Architect E.G.W. Dietrich, from Steel City to the Electric City, co-sponsored by the Lackawanna Historical Society and the Albright Memorial Library in Scranton. The event is this Saturday, but it is a sellout. So many people are interested in learning more about Dietrich, but happily, the event will be streamed live online. Christopher Gent paid a visit to the WVIA studios to introduce us to E.G.W. Dietrich, and also to help us learn how Gent himself became interested in the world of Dietrich and the world of architecture. And of course, it all goes back to Legos. I was doing Legos from a very, very young age, and I had one of these books that my mom kept with my teachers and my grades and all of these things for every year in you know elementary school. And each year, I would say I wanted to be an architect. It just kept every year that was over and over. So I've had an interest in architecture really from a young age. And I think it really goes back to, you know, the Legos in the beginning. And I think the other connection is that my father was a funeral director. And so his funeral home was in an old house in the downtown of the town that I was from in Michigan. And so I think also seeing some of the details and things inside connected and then also the church that was nearby when I was growing up was designed by Marcel Breuer. So I had not only the historic aspect, but I had the modern aspect of architecture all around me. Were you intrigued by how it was physically that these buildings could be executed? Was that part of the engineering or you were really design focused or all? I think it was it was both. I definitely had an interest when I was younger in puzzles and figuring things out and putting pieces together. So I think there was an aspect of that that, that brought me, you know, into that that area. But I also think that there was always an appreciation for quality of craftsmanship and workmanship. And so specifically looking at, you know, those older buildings that had such beautiful details and woodwork and so on was was something that I found beautiful. And then at the same time with the modern structures, you know, seeing, you know, the way concrete specifically in that building was used and, you know, studying the structure and the cantilevers and just sort of the majesty of the space, it, it really brought, you know, all of it together. So what did you do? Did you leave high school and go right to school to study architecture? So I went to the University of Detroit Mercy in Detroit, and I went there for their architecture program. 
what was exciting for me with that program in, in particular was that it was a five-year Bachelor of Architecture program, so you go straight through. But uh, they also had a foreign study component. So I was able to go abroad, and I was living in Warsaw in Poland, and then I also studied in Florence. And so did you have to concentrate? Did you go to the studio and do designs? Did you have a focus then in the five-year program? No, it was really... uh, The interesting thing when you're going to architecture school is that I'd say the first couple of years, you know, you're, you're really learning how to look at things. And in a lot of ways, you're almost being stripped of your preconceptions of how you look at things. So it's like instead of drawing a caricature of what something looks like, you have to really start to examine it. And that's a whole process, which is really the beginning stage. And I think from, you know, the beginning of drawing and sketching that way, it really changes your whole focus to really look at things in a different way that the casual observer might not do. And so you are now what? Well, I work at Paycob Freedom Partners. I'm a senior associate and uh, I am an architectural designer there. So I'm in the process right now of going through and getting my license. What happened is after the foreign study programs, I was so excited with Europe and uh, it was just such a marvelous experience that I actually went and worked there for several years. So it was working. I returned to Warsaw and uh, basically worked there for about three and a half years. And that was the beginning sort of of my professional experience after university. And then it was following that time period in 2003 that I came back and moved to New York. The reason that you're with us and that you're sitting here today and you're going to be giving a presentation with the Lackawanna Historical Society is an architect you discovered for yourself in an unusual way because you were living in a building. That's right. That's right. And the discovery happened really through my interest in, in history and design, of course. And uh, it was a beautiful old uh, shingle-style home on Long Island in a town called Bayshore. And the house had a long history. It had uh, originally belonged to a sugar refiner named John Molenhauer. He was from Brooklyn, and this was, of course, a summer home to escape the heat in the city. And I was trying to discover who the architect was. It turns out the Molenhauer family had several houses on the street, but it wasn't one of the other Molenhauer houses. It was actually another neighbor. And it turned out I discovered the architect was a person named E.G.W. Dietrich. And this was the first connection that I made because after I found that about the neighbor's house, I looked back freshly again and discovered right away that I was like, there are these similar details. I see some similar windows. There has to be a connection here. And with some further digging then, I discovered that there were actually four houses on the street, all designed by Dietrich. And this uh, all came together because I wrote the National Register listing for the house. So my sort of casual research then turned into something a little bit more formal. That was not to be the end of it then, because you wanted, of course, to know who he was, whom he worked with, where he worked, right? All these questions. And, And the interesting thing is that this was an architect that was not well documented and not very well known. There were a couple of references to him. Vincent Scully, of course, who was one of the important architectural historians of the shingle style, mentions him. And, you know, but it's sort of a passing reference. And so I really wanted to dig in and learn more and see what I could find out. And this happened to coincide really with the time period when more and more of the old architectural periodicals were being scanned and put online. And so all of a sudden, it gave you the possibility to do all of this research, not having to travel around, but really online from home. And uh, it was incredible in that way that I was able to start digging and digging and do searches and different types of searches. 
and then really start to uncover more and more of his projects and his work. You mentioned the shingle style, and I know people have heard of that, but how do you describe that on the radio? So going back into the styles that he worked in, Dietrich basically started his architectural career in about 1879, 1880. And so right at that time period, you know, the Victorian style would have been in high swing. There was a lot of mass production that was going on. So a lot of the ornamentation that was being put on buildings was not custom designed or custom made. It was being mass produced and then sort of being almost applied or pasted onto the structures. And so what started to happen kind of simultaneous to that was in the architectural profession, people started to turn away. There was a movement to look away from that over-decoration and over-ornamentation and to look back at sort of the nobility of materials and, and something that had a local connection as well to where the building or house or structure was being located. And so the shingle style really was this response, and it came a little bit out of the looking back at the old colonial architecture. The U.S., of course, had its centennial in 1876, so there was a big emphasis that started looking back at that centennial year at some of the old colonial structures. And people weren't so interested at that time in the formal or the front side even of these structures. It was the back side. So if you think about the sloping shingled surfaces, you know, a lot of times those houses might have had a clapboard front, but then the other three sides were all in shingles. So this shingle is really what sort of started to connect the architects with this nobility of the materials, the natural materials, and that evolved into the shingle style. Now, at the time, we didn't call it the shingle style. That's something that was a new invention. And going back to Scully again, he was the one who really put that name on it. But back then, they would have called it the new colonial style. And that's really where the origins come from. And uh, the buildings, as they evolved and this sort of style developed, it's special because it was really unique to America. So it was really something that evolved here and was looking not to Europe or to Britain, but really an American influence. And then you start to have also different patterns of the way people are living. So what happens there is that instead of having very formal rooms and sort of a center hall colonial design, this was much more kind of open spaces flowing from one to the other. There was a connection with nature. So you had, you know, large verandas and balconies that opened to the outdoors. And uh, the other thing is that rather than a lot of the vertical look to the buildings, there was much more of a horizontal aspect and windows started to be grouped together for the first time, you know, to sort of create and emphasize that horizontal look. Where was Dietrich from? He started, he was born in Pittsburgh and he was born to German immigrants. Both of his parents had immigrated here when they were younger. And he actually comes from a sort of unstable family background. His father was drafted into the Civil War in the 1860s when Dietrich was still quite young. He was the oldest of six siblings. And uh, when his father returned from the war, he really, I don't know if it was exactly injuries. I have records that he was in a hospital for a while during the war, but he then turned to drinking. And so I think it was probably some of the violent experience, you know, injuries, residual pain and so on, but it really created a problem there. And so what happened is Dietrich's mother, her name was Johanna, she filed for divorce against her husband. And of course, at that time period in the 1870s, that was, you know, very unheard of. So he basically left the family then. And Dietrich, being the oldest of the uh, six children, had to really kind of step up and, and step into adulthood and fend for himself at that point. And so he began with a process of going to a couple of local colleges 
There was a business college that he attended called Duff's Business College in Pittsburgh. And then he also attended for a little bit the Western College of Pennsylvania, which is now, I think, the University of Pittsburgh. And so with that background at the business college in particular, there were some of the local architects that were teaching classes on drafting and drawing. And so that was really his introduction to architecture. I think he immediately made a good impression on them because they ended up then taking him in as a sort of intern. And that really was the way that you commonly became an architect back then was through apprenticeship. And so his first drawing that we know of was in 1879. And that's held right now by the Carnegie Museum of Art. And it's not an original design of his, but what he did is he took from an architectural periodical a house that he liked and he redrew it himself. So that's the first example that we have of his from 1879. After then doing that little bit of apprenticeship in Pittsburgh, he decided to go off to Brooklyn. And so he left and went to New York City and settled in Brooklyn in a rooming house and basically managed to get several of his drawings published at that time, which I think is really a big deal. And it shows just really the beauty and you know execution that he was able to do these technical drawings with that they were already from the beginning kind of admired. And so even when he was doing the apprenticeships, he was sort of the person that would be doing the presentation drawings and sketching things out for clients. But he didn't last in Brooklyn for long. He was only there for about three or four months. And he returned back to uh, Pittsburgh then at that point. And I'm not sure if the reason was just career-wise that he wasn't making it, or shortly after that, he became engaged. So it might have also have been a romantic uh, relationship at that time. But when he returned to Pittsburgh, he teamed up with another architect whose name was Bartberger. And the interesting thing with the Bartbergers, there was a senior Bartberger who had been an architect for many years, originally from Germany, in Pittsburgh, and had done many buildings. And then his son uh, is the one who teamed up with Dietrich. And I think the relationship there was that Dietrich really brought the design ideas and that beautiful drawing skill with him. And then Bartberger had the business connections and really the clients in the Pittsburgh area. And so they had a good partnership together where each had their role in that way. And I think that it's very good for you exploring his story as his career unfolds, that you actually lived in a building that he designed so that you could have a sense of the livability questions in... Absolutely. I mean, his his specialty really was residential houses and particularly not houses in cities, but they were these sort of country houses for people or more, you know, suburban houses. But of course, different than the suburbs we think of today. At that time, they were really places to get out of the city and you would still, you know, have sort of a walkable environment to get to the train or the streetcar to get into work. So he really focused on that kind of design. But all of those aspects of the shingle style that we talked about, you know, really that connection to nature, the outdoor porches and blurring between inside and outside space. One of the other elements in many Dietrich's houses is that he has a very grand staircase. And the upstairs, when you arrive on the second floor, is not sort of a, a tight, narrow corridor like many old houses have. You arrive at a beautiful landing and an almost upper gallery space. So that really is a signature of his, and, and it created these beautiful open spaces inside the homes. People who could commission a work from an architect and to have that size and lovely materials needed to have some wealth. Absolutely. And this was especially at the beginning of his career, you know, right at the moment when a lot of the industrialization was happening in the 1880s and the 1890s. 
particularly looking at Scranton here, it's very interesting that right at that time period, you know, you have the explosion here in the city with industry, with railroads, you know, obviously the coal being harvested and sent different places around the country. So I think in some ways it's very interesting that his career coincides with this exact time period when all of this wealth was being generated. Was he able to secure clients' word of mouth in these periodicals? How did he come to the attention of people in Scranton when he's in New York or Pittsburgh? So this is this is a wonderful question, and it really goes straight to my presentation because I'll be speaking quite a bit about this at the library on the 21st. But I guess the starting point is that at some point along in his early career, he met somebody named Clinton Wheeler Wisner. And Mr. Wisner was originally from Pittston. And what happened is he ended up living in Brooklyn. And his family background uh, of the Wisner family was in a small village called Warwick, New York. And what's interesting with all of this is that the, the Wisner family goes long back to colonial times in Warwick. But I think it was when Dietrich left Pittsburgh and went for that brief stay in Brooklyn that these two men must have met and come together. Because what happens then is Dietrich, as I said, returned back to Pittsburgh again. But in 1884, Clinton Wheeler Wisner hires Dietrich to design his home in Warwick, New York. And so what happens at that time is not only did Dietrich design the home for Clinton, he also designed it for his cousin, whose name was Louise, Louise Wisner, also from Pittston originally. And so there's this connection then where Dietrich is living and working in Pittsburgh, but he's you know building these two homes right next to each other in the village of Warwick, which is just a little bit outside of New York, about an hour away. So Dietrich finds success with these homes. They're written about in the newspaper. People are coming from different places to look at them. They're that popular. And so I think this starts a real interest in him as an architect and gets his career rolling. Well, the other interesting aspect is Clinton Wheeler Wisner's father ended up marrying into the Horatio Pierce family, which was a very affluent family in Scranton. And it was not Clinton's mother, but his stepmother, who was the daughter of Mr. Pierce. And when uh, Mr. Pierce passed away, Basically, Clinton Wisner was hired to be the attorney to handle the estate. And back then in these days, this was a huge thing because you had so many business interests and, you know, investments in different places. So it took quite a long time. Well, part of the estate, they bequeathed money to the church. And so it was St. Luke's, uh, which is in Scranton. And basically, there was a rectory building that was going to be built from money in the will. And so, of course, who do they turn to to design that rectory building? But it was Dietrich. And it was all through the Wisner family that that connection came about. But uh, Louise Wisner that I mentioned, who was the cousin that also had the house next door in Warwick, what's interesting is she ends up meeting somebody named Thomas Jones. Now, Mr. Jones was from Scranton. And, of course, what happened then is after being married in that beautiful home up in Warwick, they come here and they settle in Dunmore and they build a home there. And the name of that house is called Fieldstone. And it's uh, just at the corner of Green Ridge and Adams. And of course, the interesting thing here again is who do they hire as the architect, but Mr. Dietrich to come and design their house for them. And once again, that house, once it's built here, is really admired. It's written about in the newspaper. You know, the combination of the natural stone that's used, the form, you know, it has sort of a turret on one side. It's really something that's eye-catching and a lot of people are looking to at that time period. 
how many homes in Scranton and vicinity have you turned up? <laughs> so I would say in Scranton itself, it's a little over 20. And I say that because there's a few of them right now that I'm guessing may be Dietrich Designs, but I haven't, you know, they're attributed. I don't have an actual connection. But when you look at the elements and design style, you can sort of tell. He also designed a home, which is the Westmoreland Club now in Wilkesbury. So a lot of people might be familiar with that building. And then another interesting component is that he worked on some railroad stations for the uh, New York, Ontario, and Western Railway that ran between uh, Scranton and up to Hancock, New York. And so this was a new rail line that came in in uh, 1889, 1890 when it opened. And so Dietrich ended up designing nine stations along the line. One of them was a unique three-story station in Carbondale. And the fascinating aspect here is that they were sort of the last train line to come through the valley at that point. And so getting the trackage the right way and coming through some of these towns and getting access was difficult. So they built through Carbondale a large trestle that went over the river and the other railroad lines. And that was the reason for needing this three-story station. So there was a separate steam elevator for all of your baggage and things to go up and then another one for the passengers to go from street level up to the platform on the trussel. Can you see, as you spend time discovering examples of his work that are still with us, an evolution of his style? Was he in keeping with the current trends? No, absolutely there's an evolution over time. What's very interesting, not only his career, but I think the architectural styles in general, is when you go, I was saying originally how the shingle style was sort of this new colonial style, and very close to that then, uh, you had the colonial revival style that came in, which had uh, sort of much more of a formality to it. You know, you had sort of a lot of dormer windows and you had, you know, different balustrades and those sorts of things. So he also worked in that style. And in fact, his own home in Bensonhurst was done in the colonial revival style. But then beyond that, the shingle style sort of leads right into the arts and crafts style. And so he was a very early proponent of arts and crafts. And in fact, he worked with Gustav Stickley, the furniture designer, to design the first craftsman-style house. First? The first. Uh, so it was basically, uh, Stickley had his magazine. The magazine was called The Craftsman. And he was using that magazine to promote the ideals of arts and crafts and craftsman furniture and art and other things that went along with that. And there started to be a series of houses where different architects would submit their plans. In May of 1903, it was published in Stickley's Craftsman magazine. And so this is the first time that they designed a specific house in cooperation. So Dietrich did the architecture and the house and all of the drawing, but it used Stickley's Craftsman-style furniture to populate the rooms and the spaces. So it was really blending these two ideas together. Now, the interesting thing is this relationship only lasted for this one project. And so I've heard from people who have studied Stickley that he was not always the easiest person to get along with. Uh, a lot of times Stickley also liked to have his name over everything, and he took credit. And of course, Dietrich already at this time in his career was very successful. He had, you know, a good practice. He had a lot of money at that point. So he didn't really need to be under Stickley in that way. So I think after they did that collaboration, they decided to part ways and move on. What is it that is so attractive even today in the craftsman style house? Well, I think what was interesting with the whole movement is it wasn't only about a design aspect. It was really a lifestyle that went with it. 
And even beyond lifestyle, it, it went into an appreciation for the workers that made the furniture, for the material that was used, you know, solid pieces of good, strong wood that would last. It wasn't, you know, veneered. And there was even a social aspect where there was almost an early period of improving workers' rights because you respected workers, you wanted to create a good environment for them. So there was an emphasis that went through not only from just a, a chair or a piece of furniture, but that then went to the way you lived in the room, you occupied the house in a different way, and then you lived your life and did business in a different way as well. Are the buildings that remain and the ones no longer with us in Scranton that were Dietrich's a range of years, the early ones, the Warwick connection. So it's it's interesting. There, there's almost two periods in a sense. There's houses that are about 1887 is the first one, Fieldstone, that I mentioned, the Jones house. And then he sort of is going quite busy up until about 1891, 1892. And of course, 1893, there was a big economic depression that hit. And so that really impacted the entire country, manufacturing, industry, and I think especially someplace like Scranton, where it was so dependent on all of that sort of business. So that slowed things down a little bit. And then he basically returned again in like 1895. By that time, the economy had picked up again. And he continued to design houses here until about 1898. Now, it seems, at least with my research so far, that that is about the end of his work here in Scranton. He, of course, was still working and going on and doing projects in other places. But that's primarily the range that exists here. When we attend your presentation, you'll be helping us to develop a way of looking at and appreciating Dietrich's style. We don't have any examples here on the radio that people can see, but what would you suggest? It's a hard thing as well to describe when you're not actually looking at it. But I think what's interesting, Dietrich himself said that he really wanted homes and buildings that were designed, again, with that ornamentation stripped off sort of having a dramatic roof line he mentions and a lot of his homes have very interesting roof structures that are quite you know recognizable and they have again a grounded feel to them I think in the landscape or wherever they're built so I think on one sense the massing in the exterior is is something that everybody should look at but I also think it's interesting to go a little bit deeper and then start to study the floor plans when you look at the floor plans of the houses, they as well are works of art, right? How you're fitting that puzzle and those pieces together. But you also can imagine almost the way that you would be living through the different spaces and going from one room to the other. One of the things I mentioned before was about how the grand staircases and the large you know, balconies on the second floor, sort of this gallery space, even on the ground floor and as the designs evolved, and, and this really goes eventually into the craftsman style, is that you, you go from having a very formal entry hall that's a cold space to having an entry area that functions more as another room in the house. It's not just left for transversing or just staying in for a short period. You use it as a space. There's a fireplace. There might be an ingle nook off to the side that you can occupy. And then from there, you really have the different rooms, one flowing into the other. So I think it's looking at that arrangement of spaces that really adds some interest, too. What do you learn when you talk to the current owners of the houses? Do they exclaim about the livability of the place? What kinds of things do you hear from them? Well, I think all of the owners definitely appreciate the livability. I think there's a great aspect of the light. There's a lot of natural light that comes through. So I think those, those are big, important pieces. I think also, again, when I talked before about the connection to the outdoors, you know, there's a lot of porch spaces and things that can be used that really connect out to the exterior. So those are all important aspects. 
How long did he live and how long did he work? Was he able to work till the very end? So he died on Christmas Eve 1924. And the interesting thing is that he was still working at that point. He was going into work, waiting on the platform in Freeport, New York, where he lived at the time for the Long Island Railroad, to go into his office in the city. And uh, he unfortunately suffered a heart attack. But up until that point, he had been designing, uh, I think I mentioned before, the Lutheran churches. Actually, his own congregation in Freeport was working on uh, raising funds, and he had designed their new church building. But unfortunately, they didn't quite have the funds yet. Construction started just after his death and then was completed in 1925. How do you place his work and his career then? You said he got a glancing mention, Vincent Scully book. But how do you, as someone who's spent more time than most with his work and exploring? So I I think he was an extremely important architect of his period, uh, especially of the residential work that he was doing and what he was known for. It's interesting that he is not as well known today as some other architects. And I think part of the reason for that is that his legacy and sort of his archive of drawings was not in a university, or it wasn't donated to a public place where people could access it. Of course, when Vincent Scully and other scholars were starting to look back at this type of architecture, because it was very unpopular for a long time, they were looking first at what was at the library at Columbia, at Avery, or at Yale, what was easily there. We didn't have the internet yet, nothing was scanned, so you had to literally go and flip through pages of the periodicals or the drawings that architects had donated. And so Dietrich's collection remained in private hands. Uh, It was held by the family for many years. And I think this is a large reason why his legacy was never passed on or people didn't know about it very much. Another reason is, as I mentioned, a lot of his designs were in these sort of suburban or more outside of urban areas. And so as these sorts of towns fell on harder times in the 70s and the 80s, there wasn't a lot of resources that went to studying their architecture or their particular buildings. And so it's been part of my drive as well to share my research with these different communities and really give them something to understand about their own history and how important that legacy from, you know, the turn of the century as it comes forward today. You know, you can look back and see, wow, we had this very important architect from New York who came and designed these buildings and the people who commissioned them were really progressive and at the forefront of design at that time. Are you working to prepare a book, study, something? Absolutely. I recently was fortunate enough to acquire Dietrich's archive of drawings. And so that has been an amazing resource that adds to my research that I already had been working on for the past 10 years. And so I think now the combination of the research that I've already done, I've gone to visit and photograph his built works in six different states. It's really all leading, I think, to a a monograph on the architect. Christopher Gent, Senior Associate and Architectural Designer at the international firm of Pay Cobb, Freed & Partners, and as you may guess, the pay of that name is the award-winning architect I.M. Pay. Christopher has spent the last 10 years researching the life and work of prominent American architect E.G.W. Dietrich, and he will present a program on Dietrich at the Albright Memorial Library this Saturday, October 21st at 2 in the afternoon. The talk is titled From Steel City to the Electric City. 
and it will be also online. There is such a great interest in Christopher's talk that there is no more room in the Henkelman space at the library. So they've created an online wait list. So if you'd like to register and be on the wait list, that's one option. The other thing for all of us, wherever we are, is that his talk will be streamed live online, but you would need to register for the link. So here is the information. It's Albright. A-L-B-R-I-G-H-T dot org, and you can find information on the talk and how to register for the wait list and or how to get the link to the online presentation version of the presentation. It is Saturday, this Saturday, October 21st at 2 in the afternoon. Architect E.G.W. Dietrich from Steel City to the Electric City presented by the guest today on Art Scene, Christopher Gent. And if you need more information, albright.org. The event is co-sponsored by the Albright Memorial Library and the Lackawanna Historical Society. Albright.org. And it's architect E.G.W. Dietrich from Steel City to the Electric City, presented by Christopher Gent. And it's October 21st, Saturday at 2, and you can stream live online.